Welcome to the Agile Book Club Podcast, where we hang out and talk shop with the authors whose ideas are shaping the Agile landscape. Here is your host, Paul Clip. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Agile Book Club Podcast. I am your host, Paul Clip, and today on this episode, we are going to be talking to Canadian coach, consultant, and trainer Gil Broza, who is also the author of four books, The Agile Mindset, The Human Side of Agile, Agile for Non-Software Teams, and his latest book, which we'll be talking about today, Deliver Better Results, How to Unlock Your Organization's Potential. Now, when I first looked at this book, I assumed it was going to be what I call a Me Too book. Now, if you follow this podcast, you know I have my own way of categorizing books in this field. And a Me Too book is not necessarily a bad thing. It's a book that presents no original ideas. But with the rise of self-publishing, so many people in our space are able to describe their points of view on tools and techniques and principles and philosophies that are useful or their particular toolkits and how it works for them. And I find that often to be tremendously helpful. So not to denigrate Me Too books, not all of us can be thought leaders who change the industry by ourselves. But when I read it, I was very impressed to find that there is something in here that takes it a step beyond the typical Me Too book. On the one hand, it is composed mostly of ideas which were already existing in the industry. You will have heard of most of the ideas in this book. But what Gil does is present them in a way that does two things that I find incredibly valuable. Number one, he does present an original idea, which is a way of easily analyzing the situation in which a company may find itself in a way that the people involved can understand and get behind and agree upon, and exactly what sorts of tools to use in order to improve that company's agility from wherever they happen to be to the next step. So that's the original idea in this book. The other thing that I find very valuable in this book is while it is full of ideas which are already existing in the industry, it presents them in a non-dogmatic way. So rather than for example, explaining how to use Kanban or how to use Scrum or how to use theory of constraints or what have you, Gill deals rather with the problem that those sorts of tools are designed to solve while leaving the selection of tools that you may choose to use up to you. And I found that to be absolutely fascinating and very, very refreshing given just how dogmatic so many in our discipline are and how attached they are to their particular toolkits. So with that introduction, let's go right into the first half of the interview. Please meet my new friend, Gil Barroza. So my first question, when you wrote this book, Deliver Better Results, who was it that you had in mind? Who's your target audience? I wrote it for people who lead products, lead people, who lead projects or lead process. So it can be your scrum masters, directors of engineering, heads of product, but people who otherwise are central to getting work done and producing results, who need to make it better, need to or want to, I should say. Many of them want to, some of them have to. Okay. One of the cases that you make in this book is that it's not something 
this kind of change isn't something that somebody can do alone. It really requires changing the entire system, which requires collaboration with leaders throughout the organization. And so your target audience is also uh, the target audience of this podcast, which is product managers and middle managers and scrum masters and agile coaches. But these are typically people who have very limited or no authority whatsoever. They only have influence over a small part of the system. So what advice do you have for especially someone like the Scrum Master who finds this, they find themselves in the level one system, they find your book and they think it's brilliant, but they realize that they are not in a position to execute these strategies. What do they do? Okay, so the first thing to realize is that except in the rare organization, you don't really find a single person who can make the entire change happen. Even if you have, let's say you work in a product company and you have somebody at the top who heads up both the technology part and the product parts, they're all under that person. Even that person, even though they have the authority, they're not going to actually execute all of this. They're too busy doing bigger things. So they will rely on leaders on the ground, so to speak. Now, practically every change that happens in an organization happens as a result of people collaborating with each other. This collaboration can take the form of coordinating. It can take the form of strategizing what to do next. It can take the form of, what are you hearing from your people? Oh, I heard this from my people. And you compare rumors and you compare data points. People who are, let's say, mostly focused on the team level, let's say Scrum Masters, what can they do? Through their actions and conversations, one thing that they can do is to build greater awareness of this whole system concept. Now, this is something that presumably comes built in with Agile, but we don't necessarily use that lingo much, right? We do talk about value delivery, and we kind of understand that a lot of people are involved, and we want to bring everybody together, and we call them the team and, and, and all of that. But, but there's not enough of you know, explicit attention to the matter of when we make a decision here, it has effects there. And in a lot of organizations, you can see evidence of that because they, they basically still organize linearly. Somebody hands down stories, epics, requirements, what have you. Somebody else builds them. Somebody else might test them. Somebody else deploys them. And the decisions that each team or function or person makes has effects everywhere else. So bringing realization, bringing this awareness that we're not alone in this. We're not just a function. We're not just a step in the process. This is super helpful. Because really, one of the pieces of advice in the book is when you make decisions, think what might compound the change positively, but probably more than that, think what might actually kill the change. So for instance, you might have a Scrum Master who wants to, let's say, have a lot more meetings in order to create more collaboration. They might definitely get that, but they might also get a lot of pushback and maybe a little bit of reduction in trust as a result. That is a possibility. I've seen that happen. Because why why are they spending all this day in meetings? Now, the same goes to, you know, people with more authority, let's say, a director of engineering. Director of engineering can usually affect things only within their engineering scope, but not in product, for instance. That's been my experience in most cases. So what they can do is work with their counterparts in product, in design, in delivery, in infrastructure, and the staff engineer, whoever, and make sure that they all make decisions together. So there is basically the uh, the collaboration, the awareness, the leading by example, being an advocate, being an ambassador, and making many of the ideas in the book explicit. For instance, mindset is how we make choices that guides our actions and behaviors and therefore our results. 
let's be intentional and explicit about our mindset so it's not accidental. Now, that's an interesting point that you make in the book that I'd like to explore a little bit, which is that most organizations believe that they are being deliberate about their mindset. They have stated values. And yet, there's often a gap between the espoused values and the values that you actually see driving decisions and behaviors. How do you identify, how do you recognize that gap, especially if you don't realize that it's there, and then close it? First, you need to realize that it's there, and you would see this by the results you're getting, and you would see this in people's behaviors. For instance, let's say that you're a, let's say, mid-level or senior leader, and you want us to be collaborative. You can simply look for evidence of that happening. Now, you need to be very clear about what you're looking for because a lot of people mistake collaboration for cooperation, but fine. So you look for evidence of that and you look at how is this actually translating to the results we hope to get from this? Because maybe we are collaborating, but all we're doing is just talk, talk, talk. You look for evidence for this in the process. You look for evidence for this in behaviors. You look for when it's not happening and you try to understand why. So that's one thing. The other matter is this. Organizations often do have a set of specified and intentional values, the sort of thing we say is written on a poster that hangs in the hallway in the office that nobody goes to, right? However, those usually have to do with how we interact and engage with each other, integrity, diversity, uh, inclusion, things like that. All good. The missing bit, and this is actually something I I wrote about in, in, in a much earlier book, is that the being explicit about what we value in terms of getting work done. For instance, do we want to optimize for collaboration or do we want to optimize for the experts doing their thing? Now, we can have a bit of both, of course, but by and large, we will gravitate to one or the other. Do we want to optimize for flow efficiency or do we want to just optimize for just keeping everybody as busy as we can possibly get them to? Those are fundamentally different choices. They are values. It's stuff that's important to us. It's important to me that people are busy. It's important to me that people collaborate. It's important that we deliver value frequently. All of those statements, super high level, and they impact everything, everything in our way of working. One thing I do for my clients is actually come in, look at how things actually work out, and reverse engineer the de facto values, and then point out the gap between those de facto values and what they say they want. And well, then we want to make sure that what they want is actually suitable for the purpose. And and if it is, how do we close the gap? I want to talk about these five levels that you define that organizations find themselves in. I've got some questions about them. Before I get into it, I wonder if you could just illustrate the concept of these. I think of them as maturity levels, but I really don't like that word. How do you describe these five levels? So first, a little bit of context. What the book talks about is how we make the system of value delivery more fit for purpose, which means having it kind of grow through those levels of fitness. And yes, there are five of them. And the levels are pretty much defined. I don't want to use the word defined, but recognized, let's say, by the effect of the system of value delivery on the company achieving its mission and objectives. So like level one system, things are not going well, it's behind. There are occasional successes, but it doesn't really get anywhere much. Level three, let's jump to that one. You know, results are satisfactory, but when you look at how things progress, 
you realize it's really all hanging on the few people who make high-level decisions. They don't act as a team, but they hold the place together. Might be three people, let's say a product lead and an architect and maybe a director. And then you have like a level four, and level four is, you know, it's effective, it's efficient, but it's still not great at the, at the big stuff, the big outcomes. It's much slower than it needs to be. So the levels, you can think of them as maturity, I suppose so. I've stayed away from using that word. I haven't called it like, you know, a capability model either, because really all I'm interested in is what difference does it make to the company? That's really the question. And the other thing is, when you do the assessment that's in the book and you realize, oh, my system is at level X, the whole point of that is to then flip to the chapter that says, okay, if you're at level X, here's what you should be doing now to get to X plus one. So it's not a maturity in that sense. It is, in fact, fitness for purpose. One more thing I would say about that is uh, fitness doesn't stay constant. Right, So maybe your conditions change. Maybe you're now entering a rapid growth phase, or maybe there is a recession and you have to, I don't know, maybe you've let go a few people, or maybe somebody disrupted you. Fitness will drop due to those reasons, and you need to kind of work on getting it back up. So it's not like you've become less mature, but in a way, you've how the people and their work are fit for what the company needs from them. I like that. That's a really healthy way of thinking about it. You know, I can actually give a personal analogy. I really like running. And I live in a country where, you know, for several months of the year, I can't actually run, which is really disappointing because of the snow and the ice. Anyway, in order for me to be fit for running, I need to do several things that are not just process. Some of them are mental. Some of them have to do with what I eat. And some of them have to do with my frequency of working out and whatever. But then you can ask, okay, so you want to run a marathon? How fit are you for that? Oh, you want to run 5K? How fit are you for that? It's all contextual. And then winter comes and my fitness drops. And come March or April, when I can run on the roads again and, and you know, not slip and break my head, then I can say, well, I need to build up my fitness again. And I do this gradually. So it's not like, you know, what's my running maturity or what's my running capability? It's like, how fit am I for running? I am not fit for rock climbing. So it's all contextual. And the context for us is, the specific organization where this system of value delivery exists. And that organization has certain needs and expectations and or operates in the landscape. And not everybody needs to look like Google because not everybody has their culture, business, needs, money, or anything else. You mentioned the assessment, and I don't know if there's a question here, but I do want to mention it for the sake of our listeners, because I think that's one of the really valuable things in this book is that you have prepared a reasonably simple to administer, but very clear assessment that a group of individuals inside of an organization can use in order to align on their understanding. How does that tend to work in practice? What kind of conversations come out of that? Does it tend to be very straightforward or does it tend to be a contentious process? I don't have enough data points to generalize this yet because most of the times the assessment has taken place, I mean, the book is new, so that the assessment has taken place with me present and with me administering it, and the book was meant to make it self-serve. What I do know happens is when a person, uh, let's say engineering lead, product lead, does this assessment for the first time, they ask themselves questions that they haven't considered before. One part of that has to do with the assessment not requiring metrics. It is qualitative, and it is you know, inevitably subjective, and that's okay. 
That's why the recommendation is do it on your own, then tell your colleagues to do the same thing, do this on their own, and then you compare notes. Now, here's something I've found about this. The assessment basically works by looking at fitness aspects and saying, well, how are we right now compared to our potential optimum that would be practical and relevant for us? People don't always agree about what that optimum looks like. So, for instance, when it comes to timeliness, which is one of the fitness aspects, you know, to one person, timeliness might be like, we should be able to hit every deadline that we come up with, every deadline that's imposed on us, we should be like, perfect. And other people might say, but, uh, well, we've had lots of experience delivering a couple of weeks late, a month late, and nothing bad happened. So the optimum is probably more relaxed. The optimum of timeliness is probably more relaxed than we think. Now then, they have the conversation about, well, what's the current state like? How are we right now as it comes to timeliness? And this reminds me of a conversation I had once with a potential client I was sitting with. I think he was a uh, director, and the VP was present. And the VP kind of let the director run, run the show, and he was talking about you know how it can help them and this and that. And the director's, oh, it's fine, it's fine, we're all good, we're all good. We don't have any problem here because he, he didn't want to look bad. And he said, no, we deliver on time. And at that point, the VP just lost it. And he just said, we're always late. What are you talking about? We're always late. Okay, if we want him to help us, what's good kidding him, right? So doing this assessment independently, so a few people doing it independently, will reveal misalignment. And the first thing you want to do is, you know, you want to kind of, you know, show your cards and say, oh, I thought this and you thought that. And, and so let's align on what's our potential ideal and how we think of the current state. Now we can actually have a proper assessment together. And now if we choose the strategies from that level, we actually have a chance of making it as opposed to deluding ourselves. Something else that sometimes happens with this assessment is that people just become overly harsh. I had a potential client uh, two years ago. And I was talking to the CIO and I was talking to like the head honcho in program management and the CIO is like, you know, things are okay. We're not great. It's fine. We'll be fine. And he, he was very forthright. The program manager came back saying this aspect far, which is like the worst, that aspect far. He basically said, everything is broken. It's kind of hard to talk to people, say everything is broken, end of sentence. So they have to resolve this for themselves. So as I can imagine, it, it does lead to some very interesting conversations. Yes, and, and I think that's actually partly creditable to that lack of metrics. Because here's the thing, nobody ever has complete metrics. People do measure all sorts of process things, but then there's also the question of interpreting the metrics. So for instance, if we deliver on average to production every, I don't know, two and a half weeks, let's say, just making this up, is that good, is that bad? Who knows? And then we might say, oh, but everybody's doing continuous delivery. I mean, no, they don't, but everybody kind of sounds like they do. So we must be doing pretty badly if we deploy every two, two and a half weeks. But the answer is no. It's like, what would matter to us? We might deploy, but then nobody's going to take any delivery of that. Nobody's even going to want it because of maybe some change fatigue or the need for, to make certain changes to really make use of the new delivery. We are not going to make much use of it in terms of, you know, integrating our code and making sure that we're testing continuously. So we don't need that. Maybe instead we can focus our attention on something more important and say, well, if we get to once every two weeks, we're just fine. That's it. Let's talk high level here about, about change. I think uh, one of the, one of the challenges 
involved in driving change initiatives is that you do need leadership to drive it. And my experience and my expectation is that change is more frightening for leadership than for individual contributors because they have more at stake, they've got more invested, and because it is the status quo that has rewarded them thus far and gotten them to where they are. And so if you want to be a change leader, if you're a leader reading this book and you need to get other leaders on board, how do you do that without positional authority and recognizing the fear that change of this magnitude is going to represent for other leaders in the organization? This is probably the biggest problem when it comes to change, isn't it? So one thing that comes to mind is this. I made the point in the book, assume that there is fear. Everybody you talk to assumes that they fear something, whether it's fear for their job or self-worth or relationships at work, or maybe they just really want to avoid an uncomfortable conversation with their manager. Assume fear. So when you engage, when you look for those other leaders who will help promote the change, the leaders who are necessary for promoting the change, deal with everyone separately. Because everybody will have different motivations and different fears and different concerns, a different history of success that got them where they are. I mean, of course, we always like to say, and I think it's true, that people do what's right for the company, but they also do look out for number one. And that is always a tricky balance. One thing we know from change initiatives, and I'm specifically thinking about the agile space because I've been active in that one for 23 years, is that if you want to sell change on the merit of process, you will get to nowhere. You might be able to sell it to an executive who say, oh, process A instead of process B, sure, go ahead, do that. But in terms of it actually taking hold and making a difference, you're not going to go far. Because you do need to win hearts and minds, which has to do with personal motivation and, again, mindset. And the other thing that that you want to look at is really how are we even making a change in, in a way that it's likely to stick, and that's why the book is really big on system thinking, as opposed to everybody, you know, you just deal with your local thing, and things should be okay. So product, you upgrade product, you bring in A-B testing, you bring in experimentation, you change how you write stories, whatever. In engineering, we'll deploy frequently, and we'll write tons of unit tests, and uh, blah, blah, blah. We'll get this tool, this co-pilot, this, who cares? You do need to have those conversations with them. But if the conversations are only process, they won't go far because you need to actually have a, view, a collective view of how is this going to make us successful together. So if you talk with really senior leaders, yes, there's fear. The fear usually has to do with, I'm not going to be able to act on my objectives. I don't know that I can really trust the team. I don't know that the process is working. I don't have visibility. Things could break down anytime. Things of that nature. So what I advise in the book is really um, some strategies for getting with people and upgrading the system, but to also approach this from the angle of just making the system healthier and more fit and not just solving the problem of the day. Because when you solve the problem of the day, you just give promotions to problems number two, three, four, and so on. And so it's like if you're constantly in problem-solving mode, you're also not really doing anything about the fear. But if instead you're saying, no, here we have a set of strategies that will make the entire system that we all operate in in and lead, it will make it healthier and generally just more appropriate for what it needs to do, that will be helpful to us. 
to all of us. And then we're not alone. So one thing I've, I've uh, realized about this is how those, I call them improvement leaders in the book, they sort of act as each other's support group because it gets lonely at the top. But now you have colleagues from elsewhere in the system and you're not just talking about, you know, we'll build this or we'll build that. We are actually talking about, well, how do we engage with each other, with our teams, with the wider organization in order to make things better? So what would you tell someone who doesn't have positional authority or a great deal of influence who wants to inspire a person who's in a leadership position to investigate the, the opportunity for driving this kind of change? I would want a person to bring the concept of fitness for purpose into discourse, right? So not just talk about how well are we doing Scrum or, you know, are our whip limits low enough and all sorts of process um, matters that don't necessarily inspire others. One special thing about the book is how the chapters are sequenced and what's in each one. And so a design choice I made in chapter one is If you read this book and you want to show your boss, and your boss is just not going to read the entire book, they can just read chapter one. And this will help you communicate the key concepts kind of quickly enough. It's a 20, 30-minute read. And then you can have the conversation about, well, what does that mean to us? So if we're no longer looking for, I don't know, Scrum compliance or safe compliance or something like that, but instead we talk about how does our work help the company succeed? We can use the terms and ideas from chapter one, including if we assess at level X, what do we need to do to get to X plus one? And also, I imagine that uh, a more proactive approach to improving fitness is more aligned with a systems thinking approach, whereas a reactive problem-solving approach lends itself more to local optimization, because the problem is there. That's where it hurts, and so that's where we focus the attention. I agree with that. And and I also want to point out one more thing. So what I think of as the system is made up of people and how they get work done. It is not just the process. So for instance, if you think about the theory of constraints, for instance, it says, well, look for the constraint. The constraint might be, you know, a person doing something. It might be a resource, a physical resource. could be something like that. But generally, the problem-solving approaches focus more on process. And here, what I'm saying is, no, the process gets used by human beings. We're not trying to fix the human beings. We're trying to work with the human beings we have to create these conditions whereby they can also take care of the process. And so all of these improvements that we're making holistically, all the strategies in the book are holistic, they're not localized. It it all starts with the people. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Gil Broza as much as I did. If you did, please stay tuned because in two weeks, Gil and I are going to dig deeper into some of the ideas and to deliver better results. And if you want to read ahead so that you can follow along with the conversation and see if we address some of the questions that you have after reading the book, I would encourage you to get the book. I think it's a wonderful addition to any Agile Coaches Library or Manager's Library or Agile Consultant's Library. And there will be a link to get the books in the show notes. There will also be links to some of Gil's other materials and to find Gil on his various social media platforms. And I also want to encourage everyone, if you're based in Europe, or if you're just burning with a desire to visit Europe come June, which is a beautiful time to be in the historic medieval city of Krakow, Poland, please have a look at the ACE conference. We've got a wonderful lineup. By the time the second episode of this podcast comes out on the 15th of March, we should have the full lineup 
on the website, and it's going to be really, really exciting. Several of the people speaking are people that you will have met on this podcast, and so I would love to see you there. Until next time, from the Agile Book Club podcast, thank you for listening. Goodbye.